Today, we have a story which is a long way from life in lockdown. An extraordinary tale from Iraq. It's a story of a zookeeper, one of the very few in the region, called Abu Laith. Abu Laith always loved animals. He always felt that animals understood him. His house was right next door to the zoo, so he'd climb up on the roof and spy on all the animals to make sure they were okay. He arranged the evacuation of the zoo in Mosul in 2017 as he wanted to defend Zombie, his lion cub, and Lula, a bear, from ISIS. And then these three figures come running at him out of the distance. You know, he was terrified. He thought they were ISIS fighters that were going to kill him. But at what cost? His face was sort of sunken and, and purple. He looked really, really sick and, and very thin. This is Stories of Our Times, from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the father of lions. My name is Louise Callahan. I'm the Middle East correspondent for the Sunday Times. Back in 2016, Louise was covering the conflict in Iraq and Syria. Even in the midst of war, with life turned upside down, people hang on to the things that make them feel human. That's to say, a zookeeper will do anything to hold on to his zoo. I'd heard rumours that there was a zoo, but I wasn't quite sure what to believe. There was all sorts of stories flying around at that time. So uh, I'd been working near the front line that day with my colleagues, a photographer and a local producer. We were going around you know, talking to people who'd been fleeing. And I think we had some spare time around lunchtime and we thought, OK, well, why don't we try and go to this zoo? I think the area had only been liberated from ISIS um, a day or so before. We drove up to the outside. It's this, like, around the edge of the zoo, there's a chain-link fence, uh, and, and then there was a gate by the, by the car park, and the gate was locked. So we went and were trying to look for a way in, when there were these little kids that ran up to us, and they were saying, you have to go and look, there's a lion inside there, there's a bear inside there, and I, you know, obviously didn't believe them. But then we went with them, and we... Everything was closed off, so we kind of climbed over a part of the fence. And we walked up to the middle of the zoo where, sure enough, there were cages with a, a lion and a bear inside. 
And there was, you know, this big rotund guy, bright ginger hair, who's a zookeeper. His name is Abulith, and he'd kept the zoo open the whole time during ISIS. <laughs> I mean, he was just so funny. I, I got along with him really well. It was one of those really weird moments when, you know, when I was there every day reporting, I was seeing all this horrible stuff and hearing all these grim stories. But here was someone who was actually, you know, he was quite hopeful and he was really happy. You know, he just, his whole family had survived. And he was just sort of cracking jokes about ISIS. So we got along really well and, and we would sort of speak occasionally. Whenever I was in Mosul, I'd look him up. But what was this jovial, straight-talking eccentric doing running a zoo in the middle of a war zone. Abulith always loved animals. He always felt that uh, animals understood him. And in Iraq, then, it's considered faintly sort of dodgy <laughs> to, really, mm. um, to really like animals. And also, Abulith bred pigeons. And pigeon breeders in, uh, would you believe it, in Iraq, are just viewed as these really sketchy people. They, they can't testify in court. Really? Yeah, yeah, they can't testify in courts. You can't testify in court if you're a pigeon breeder. Exactly. I, yeah, they're, so they're just known as kind of wheeler dealers, you know, they're, you know, sort of do dodgy local guys. Um, and so Abelith was one of those, you know, he's, he's always been uh, an outsider, he's always been very unusual. And then so when, when the war came, and uh, then I think that this was looking after the animals, was something that he felt that he was the only one who could do, he, he felt like it was his duty to look after them. And I think, you know, my interpretation of it is that, you know, he saw all this horror, he saw all this chaos, he wanted to do something good. And looking after the animals was a way to do that, make, make him feel human, in a sense. Abu Leith loved all animals, but he had a particular affection for big, dangerous predators. You know, the more totally inappropriate as pets, the more likely he is to have one. Abelith, just before ISIS arrived, I think about six months before, he managed to come into possession of a lion cub, which had been bred, you know, obviously very illegally wow. in, a, in another zoo next to the Tigris. And uh, he called the cub Zombie because he'd watched <laughs> The Lion King with slightly badly translated Arab subtitles. And he thought that that was... <laughs> That was what the, the the cub and the Lion King was called. Zombie. Um, and then so zombie, yeah. So he has so he has this lion called Zombie, uh, and you know he fed it with a bottle, and he'd spent hours telling me about the zombies, you know, feeding regimen. You know he was going to raise him to be the king of the jungle. You know the king of lions. He started off feeding him uh, cow's milk, and then that didn't work. And he tried to find him, you know, tried to find him donkey milk so that he'd grow really really big and strong. But in the end, you know, it was apparently quite hard to get a hold of donkey milk. And then he managed to find a load of buffalo milk that he'd feed Zombie with. And Zombie was growing really fast. He was growing into a big lion by the time that Isis arrived. But obviously, when they arrived, a lot of things changed. And uh, the animals began to suffer. We saw sporadic gunfire and burning military vehicles. The insurgents seized police stations, banks, and government buildings. These government troops are withdrawing, driven out by fighters of the Al-Qaeda-affiliated Islamic State in Iraq and the Levant.
When ISIS first came to Mosul in the summer of 2014, most people didn't know what to make of the militant group. So, you know, those beheading videos hadn't been released yet. ISIS was, to all intents and purposes, just another jihadi group. And so they, they kind of got there and they, they kicked out the army, which belonged to the Iraqi government. And in Mosul, a lot of people had really disliked the army. They were seen as an occupying force in Mosul in some ways. So for Abu Layth, I think that the change came probably about six months after ISIS came. So this was when ISIS started showing its real face. When they first arrived, they, they, they were saying, oh, we've, we've liberated Mosul from the army. You know, as long as you follow our rules, you know, they might be a bit annoying, but you, you're basically going to be okay. But then once ISIS started showing its real face, you know, once they started sort of arresting people for minor things, they started enforcing the wearing of the niqab for women and covering, covering fingers and, and toes and eyes and everything in between. Um, so there was very kind of few things that you could do and a lot of the restaurants had closed or a lot of the cafes had closed, you know, before people would sit around outside smoking shisha, they couldn't do that anymore. But the zoo, weirdly, was one of those things that ISIS let happen because at the same time, it, you know, it helped their propaganda. They wanted to promote this idea that they were an Islamic state, you know, emphasis on the word state, that, that there were that this was a normal place where you could live, it was a nice place. A lot of ISIS propaganda, um, especially during the beginning of occupation, showed, you know, roads being built, nice hospitals, that kind of thing. What was the moment for Abu Layth that made him think... ISIS might be a problem. From the beginning, Abu Layth was very suspicious about them. It was a few months into occupation when he went to the mosque that was opposite the road from his house, so actually in the same, in the same complex where the zoo is. And there was a, an ISIS leader there, a local ISIS leader. And he was very angry at Abu Layth. He told him, you haven't been praying. You know, why haven't you been here? And Abu Layth, characteristically, was just absolutely furious. He said, you know, how can you talk to me this way? Um, and what have you done to this mosque? Because Abu Layth had paid for the construction of the mosque in a, in a slightly religious phase about 10 years before. Um, and so in, in the mosque, he'd put up all this you know, nice calligraphy on the walls, kind of decorated it nicely. But ISIS, because of their very puritanical version of Islam, had destroyed all the calligraphy, smashed it to bits with the, the butts of their rifles. And so Abu Layth, I think, was, was really shocked and realised how how harsh the rule was going to be. Um, and then it, it wasn't long after then that he started receiving threats to his life from this ISIS leader, and then so he went into hiding. So tell me about the threats to his life. How, you know, how does the first one arrive? How does he realise it's serious? He heard from someone who'd uh, been at the mosque, a local elder. He, he turned up at Abu Layth's house and he said, look, there's this local ISIS leader who's told you that he's going to slaughter you like a, like a sheep at Eid, like at, at the religious festival. And he, the rumours had gone round that, you know, Abu Layth liked to drink and people had been reporting that they hadn't seen him at, at prayer. So he, he took the risk of hiding in his house and he asked his wife to tell any ISIS members that came that he had another wife and that he was staying with her. 
So he was in hiding at home. He was in hiding at home. And then so if you, if you can imagine that his house is about sort of five stories tall and that on the other side of the road, there's the mosque and then behind that, the zoo. So every day he'd climb up to the roof to this little parapet that they have and he'd spy on the animals and to make sure that they were okay. And was the zoo being watched? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the he would, of course, immediately have been caught if he went. The, there was a lot of ISIS families even who went to the zoo all the time. ISIS families would come and then they'd buy falafel and they'd buy ice cream and they'd walk around uh, and have a look at the animals. And, uh, you know, Abulaith was absolutely furious because he'd heard that some of the ISIS kids would uh, would poke the lion with a stick and he was sort of threatening to go out and, and show them show them what was what. But happily, his wife stopped it. How long was he stuck yeah. at home trying to look after these animals? Distant zookeeping. Distant zookeeping. Yes. Yeah, he, I think he engaged in distant zookeeping for about a year and a half, would it have been? And then after that, the war to liberate Mosul from ISIS began. That was one of the rockets heading out down towards into the plains yeah. uh, around the city of Mosul. As the sun has come up, the pace of fighting has picked up as well. When the war began, then ISIS sort of rallied its forces along the outskirts of the city, but also began to dig defences and, and prepare for a battle inside the city. And then, of course, uh, the siege of Mosul meant that no food could get in or out. So people started getting hungry. And How do they, they feed were, the you know, animals when there's not much food? Well, they fed them a really weird array of stuff. You know, anything that they could get their hands on. Lots of sort of um, old rice that they could scavenge from bins. You know, and Abulaith is devastated because he know he knew exactly how to feed a lion and, you know, what they should have. You know, he was saying they should have, you know, seven kilos of meat a day, but instead he can only give them a handful of old beans. He knew that the animals were getting sick and, uh, and that they might not make it. And in fact, during the siege, then quite a lot of the animals died. The massive battle against ISIS launched overnight. Thousands of Iraqi troops trying to retake the key city of Mosul deal a crippling blow to the terror group. Animals obviously can't process what's what's happening. So if they hear, you know, a loud sound and a bang, they they can't think, okay, that was a that was a bomb. Maybe that will go away soon. That's you know, that's that's just terrifying for them. As fighting raged across eastern Mosul, ISIS fighters took control of the zoo, setting up a strategic position inside. Abu Layth was aware that, you know, quite reasonably, this was a military installation that was going to be targeted, and there were coalition and Iraqi planes going going over the whole time. He knew that he knew the time would come. Then one day, then uh, he was he was sitting in his house, and there was a big roar and a crash, and uh, and the zoo had been hit. So then Abu Layth, with with his whole family telling him to stop, grabbed everything, you know, grabbed bags of food and, and all sorts of stuff and, and jumped over and, and ran straight away to look inside the zoo. And he, uh, he went inside the gate and everywhere, there, you know, it's reeking and smoking and there's holes everywhere. And he thought all the animals were dead. And then these three figures come running at him out of the distance. He was terrified. He thought they were ISIS fighters that were going to kill him. But actually it was just the peacocks that had escaped from mm -hmm. a cage. So quite a few of the animals died in that strike, but happily the bear and the lions made it. So when ISIS were finally sort of beaten out of Mosul, how did life for 
Abu Laith and for the lions change? Well, the, the problem was that the, the end of the battle didn't mean the end of, of suffering for the people of Mosul. So the city was reduced to rubble, uh, especially the old city. There were IEDs left everywhere, mines. And of course, there were still huge issues with, uh, with getting food into the city. All the roads were blocked off because the army was using them to get into the city. So life for, for a long time after ISIS left didn't improve for the family. During that period, how did Abu Layth's family and his neighbours feel about Abu Layth passing scraps of food onto, onto the animals when everybody's fighting for it? Well, his, his wife is absolutely incandescent most of the time, from what I can gather. I mean, she, she loves animals, but she absolutely never understood uh, why it was that he did this. With 12 children and, to feed. Well, exactly. I mean, she, she just, you know, th- thought the whole thing was suicidal. And, but, the, you know, the thing was, with the, the kids, they loved the animals and they constantly would give their food. How did the lions bear up under all that? Well, not, not great. So um, one lion zombie survived. And when I first saw him, you know, he was just a skeleton. Uh, he kind of, he looked like a dog, really, like a dog with a really big head. And, uh, you know, I didn't quite realise what animal it was when I first looked at it. And the other, so there were two other lions, there were zombies, mother and father, they both died. They've driven the extremists out. And yesterday, Iraqi soldiers celebrated an end to the bloody struggle for Mosul. Tonight, a major victory against ISIS. The men who bravely led this battle planting the flag in the name of Iraq and its people. Reclaiming Mosul from ISIS, it's a victory, but at what cost? After years under ISIS and a months-long battle that left the city in ruins, the zoo was in tatters. Luna the bear and Zombie the lion were the only animals left alive. But as much as Abu Layth loved these creatures he could see that they'd be better off elsewhere. A local person had posted a picture on Facebook of the, of the animals and they'd written, you know, I'm, I'm in Mosul, I don't, there's these starving animals here, I don't know what to do. And amazingly, a charity in Austria called Four Paws had seen this. They'd got in touch and they said, how can we help? So then the, the, one of the vets at Four Paws, his name is Dr. Amir, quite a remarkable person. He's, he's sort of the world's foremost conflict pet rescuer. Um, that's a, that's he, a niche. That's a niche profession. So Dr. Amir is, is used to this kind of stuff. He's rescued animals from, from Aleppo, from Baghdad, from, from just about everywhere. And he thought, this is, you know, is going to be fine. So he, he kind of got his crew together, got to Mosul, and went in to try and rescue the animals. But Problems quickly arose. The Iraqi army said that the animals needed security clearance. Um, they couldn't know if the animals were ISIS members or not, basically, is what they were saying. The animals. The, the yeah. Iraqi army yeah, so. wanted to know if the animals were ISIS members. Yeah, I mean, they said humans need security clearance, animals do too. What they were saying, by, by saying that, what they were really getting at was that they didn't want the animals to leave. So Dr. Amir uh, had to go through weeks of, of these intense negotiations. So in the end, Dr. Amir, working with Abu Layth and, and Hakam and various other people, banded together to smuggle the animals out on the back of a lorry in the dead of night. Dr. Amir Khalil, the Austrian conflict pet rescuer, and Abu Layth hatched a plan to get the animals out of Mosul. 
they were going to smuggle them out in a lorry in the middle of the night. And the back of the lorry was disguised with boxes of carrots and vegetables. So they, they hid the animals inside this lorry and they, and they snuck up to you know, the different checkpoints. So is this a they, lion you know, in a giant cage on the back of a lorry? Yeah, it, it's inside a closed lorry. Um, so there's a lion and a bear inside their cages, inside a lorry. And then if you can imagine, it, when you open the back doors of the lorry, then you would see only boxes of carrots and vegetables that they'd put there to, uh, you know, to hide them. So, you know, after a nail-biting few hours, um, when they get stopped and they're not, they're not sure whether they're going to make it through, then they, then they finally, <laughs> they finally get through. And they, Dr. Umir loaded them onto a flight. And incredibly, today, Zombie lives in a nature reserve in South Africa. Wow. Uh, yeah, where he sort of runs free. He lives in this place called Lion's Rock. Um, and Lula the bear lives in a nice forest in Jordan where she has a delightful life. So it's, um, it's a funny one because obviously it's a, it's a happy ending for the two animals. But the, the humans in the story are still in Mosul, they're still suffering. Also, how did it affect Abu Layth, who was so close to these animals? I mean, they've been rescued, they're, they're safe, but he no longer has the daily contact. I mean, Abu Layth is absolutely devastated. He obviously, on a logical level, he understood that the animals would be safer outside. But, um, you know, he still thinks about them all the time, he's really sad and... He, you know, he wants to start a new zoo, which I keep telling him is an absolutely awful idea, but he, he seems determined to press ahead. Sort of a sense of loss, because it had been his purpose for so long, sort of however dangerous it got, finding food for them. You know, the animals, it was all he thought about, you know, it was all he did. He worked so hard, he risked his life to look after them, and then they were taken away. What happened to Abu Layth after that? So Abu Layth, like all other civilians in Mosul, really struggled to uh, pull his life together after ISIS. So it was still hard to, you know, get reliable, you know, cheap food. You know, prices had gone up. Supplies of different products were difficult. Businesses had been destroyed. There was very little trade. But, you know, he was okay until... A few weeks ago, when I got a very strange phone call from his wife out of nowhere. So I was sitting at home in Istanbul when uh, when I got this phone call from Lumia, Abu Layth's wife. And she said Abu Layth's been arrested. Now, when you get arrested in Mosul, what happens is that, you know, you get chucked into this communal cell. And, and you know, Human Rights Watch have reported extensively on allegations of tortures. In, uh, in Iraqi prisons. So you're in this communal cell, it'll be filthy and there's a high, you know, there's a serious risk that you're going to be tortured. Um, so Lumia, of course, when she called and told me this, she was, she was absolutely terrified. And she said that Abu Layth had been arrested on suspicion of being an ISIS member. I knew immediately that that wasn't true and that it must be a case of mistaken identity or, uh, or what happens in Mosul and also in, I think probably, most conflict-affected areas is that, you know, after the battle, then the denunciations begin. So people will say, oh, you know, he was an ISIS member, or, you know, they don't like their neighbour, they don't like their cousin. Um, they might denounce them to the authorities. And I knew that Abu Layth has a really impressive habit of making enemies everywhere. 
saying that you know he was a you know, he's an old guy he's in his uh, you know for, for, for Iraq he's, he's he's old so he's in his mid mid 60s and he's been really sick he'd had tuberculosis of the spine I know he was he was still really weak so I knew that he wouldn't last long in one of those cells so I jumped on a plane um, I went to Iraq and I started calling around different sources uh, you know generals I knew people uh, within diff different ministries, locals in Mosul, just to try and see what had happened, where was he? So eventually I, I spoke to a, a contact in the army. I found out that he was being held in this, in this place which is notorious for allegations of torture. I turned up at the place and asked, you know, asked to see the, the general in charge. And we're having this you know, quite genteel conversation. We're, we are going to his office, you know, Iraqi flags everywhere, nice big sofas, they offer me tea. But, you know, I give him a copy of the book. I say, look, I, I can vouch for this guy. I, you know, I know he wasn't an ISIS man, but ISIS hated him. And the general's nodding along, you know, perfectly friendly. And then I just hear this kind of shout behind me. And uh, Abu Layth is, is thrown into the room. And he looked, I mean, he looked like he'd been sort of kicked about for very, for several days and, and not fed. I mean, I, you know, I wasn't there. I don't know what happened, but he, he looked like he'd been treated enormously badly. And he was terrified. Uh, you know, he's this, he's this big guy who's not scared of anything. That You know, that's his whole kind of personality. And he looked exactly like he'd been sitting in a cell and that someone had pulled him out without saying where he was going. You know, he looked like someone who thought he was about to be shot. And then if he saw me, obviously he realized that wasn't going to happen. So he, you know, for the, for the first time since I've ever met him, he broke down in tears and he was absolutely devastated. And so I was sort of trying not to, you know, screw the whole thing up. So I was sitting there quietly, you know, nodding at him going, it's going to be okay. Um, but then the, the soldiers in the room, they started sort of shouting at him and insulting him and, and, and talking about, um, you know, accusing him of all sorts of things. And I was just sort of sitting there, you know, trying not to say anything. It was a confusing barrage of allegations, a time when the army was desperately trying to root out ISIS sleeper cells and sympathisers. It turned out they didn't actually have any proof against Abu Layth. So I said, OK, well, can you let him go then? <laughs> um, and he said, no, there, there has to be a trial. So Abu Layth was, Abu Layth was taken back to the cells the soldiers were all of a sudden being very nice to him. They said, oh, we're going to spoil him. We're going to give him a nice dinner. Um, and Abu Layth very sensibly was telling me, they've treated me really well. There's nothing wrong. Thank you so much. You know, he was, you know, he was saying thank you to the, to the general. He said, thank you for the great treatment. Uh, you know, Louise will make sure that everyone knows how well I was treated. So, uh, so then I go back to Erbil, which is a, a city about sort of 30 miles away. I go back there overnight. But the thing is that for a lot of people who are arrested under these circumstances in Mosul, there's not, you know, some journalist who turns up and kicks up a fuss and gets the case put at the front of the queue. Other people can wait without trial or charge, you know, for, for months in, in communal cells. So um, I felt, yeah, I felt very conflicted about that. I was, I was happy that I'd managed to help Abu Layth, but at the same time, you know, it felt bad to be exerting my influence to help him when others were suffering just as much. 
Louise's intervention had worked. Abu Laith was freed and by the time she next spoke to him, Louise was in Baghdad working on another story while Abu Laith was back at home. They FaceTimed. His face was sort of sunken and, and purple. He looked really, really sick and, and very thin. Um, but he was still sticking with the line that he'd told me before. He was saying, don't worry, I'm fine. It's going to be okay. They treated me well. It's, you know, thanks for getting me out, but, you know, don't worry yourself. It didn't feel like he was telling the truth, but it felt like he was trying to spare me, um, you know, feeling bad for all that he'd suffered. Lumiere, the whole time that he was in prison, thought he was going to die. And when I went to their house, uh, you know, to you know, talk to her during that time and get some clothes for Abilaith, then, you know, she was she was dressed in black, she was in mourning, all the female relatives in the house were were gathered around already already mourning him. Um, so when he when he turned up back alive, you know, a bit skinny and, and worried that, you know, she, she was, it was like he'd come back from the dead. Things in Mosul have calmed down. The restaurants are reopening and so are the shisha bars. But everyone in Mosul is aware that um, things can change in a second. You know, the, the car bombings could start again, the ISIS attacks could start again. Um, we just don't know. So there's this the constant state of, of not knowing. And for locals, like Abu Laith, knowing that every time they cross an army checkpoint, someone might have denounced them. You know, they could have the same name and the same, or the same birthday as an ISIS member who's recently come on a government list. It's such an unpredictable situation. People never know what's going to happen. And that is, is really difficult for, a, you know, a whole city, Iraq's second city, to bear the whole time. But as for Abu Laith, he's back on his feet. He has now a piece of paper from the, from the army that says that he's, he wasn't an ISIS member and that these allegations are false. Um, so, yeah, he's, now he's fine. He's put on weight again. He's back to his old tricks, uh, annoying everyone in the neighbourhood. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, the Sunday Times Middle East correspondent, Louise Callahan. You can read more of Louise's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producers were Asia Fuchs and Ben Mitchell. The executive producer is Leo Hornack. And the deputy executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Carla Patella. Music by Breakmaster Cylinder. If you liked what you heard, please do leave us a review. You can subscribe for free. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast and more. Also... In these uncertain times, you can keep up to date and well-informed on coronavirus and so much more every day with a digital subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times. Visit thetimes.co.uk slash subscribe to find out more. See you soon. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.